the geopolitics podcast i'm here today with my good friends jm and jerry hi guys how you doing it's uh it's a pleasure to to be here and uh you know uh like plato i you know all i know is that i know nothing that's literally it so that's uh that's me folks so i'm all you jm how are you i'm just me nothing more I'm really looking forward to talking about so talking about some of these topics with you guys today. Um, first things first is the Kerch Bridge and the Russian response and why or how that integrates with the Green Deal kind of falling apart and the general overall state of the counteroffensive. A lot of things have happened this couple last couple of days has been kind of rapid fire. I'm a little bit like I myself am a little bit overwhelmed. So I'm kind of looking forward to asking you guys questions about it. So Kirch Bridge, a really interesting uh, attack. What do you think about it, JM? I think that it probably was to be expected, and I think the Russians did expect it, which is why they installed more air defense and also it appears electronic um, warfare defense around the perimeter of the bridge, but obviously it wasn't quite good enough because one of the spans of the road bridge has collapsed into the sea and is going to have to be repaired, albeit both spans of the road bridge are not out. And unlike the first time when it was hit in early October, the rail bridge is perfectly intact. So the part of the bridge that actually is relevant to Russian military logistics to any extent that it is was not even inconvenienced or put out of action. Right. That it's was going to be my question because I, I understand the argument and I and I I told and here's me playing devil's advocate, but I, I actually agree. I understand the argument about people making the case that uh maybe this is an illegal target because of how much how heavily it is used to transport that equipment so so but as far as i know they haven't been transporting equipment on the actual road in quite a while they've used the railway and then so this makes this attack kind of doubly unsuccessful is that what i'm understanding yeah i think so it's worth restating that what they used were just below the surface level ship drones, which according to the Russians were actually launched from basically inside ter Romanian territorial waters, rather just out of them, and that they took a route which circumvented Crimea and Russian underground uh, or rather undersea radar in order to come up to the Kerch Bridge and to strike it, and that two of the drones succeeded in hitting their target and a third was disabled by electronic warfare but the bridge is probably as dual use infrastructure certainly is a legitimate target i mean the united states targeted bridges in iraq and in serbia all the time including with passenger rail traffic on them all the time in 1991 during the Gulf War then, and then later in Operation Allied Force in 1999. So it's not as if Ukraine doing this is illegal. More what's objectionable about it is that they hit the part of the bridge that isn't used for military logistics. That part, to the extent that we understand it, is 
the railroad part of the bridge, which also is used for commercial traffic. And how much the bridge is used for military traffic, I don't think it's used that very much anymore. But the broader point about why I find this attack objectionable is not so much that the attack was done. The Ukrainians are allowed to do it during a time of war, but a lot more for the reasons why the bridge is attacked. Now, the bridge is not being attacked because it's a dual-use target. It's attacked because when the bridge was first mooted as an idea, everybody in the West and Ukraine laughed at it that, ha ha ha, stupid Russian Votniks, they'll never be able to build it, and certainly not in that time. These sorts of things require sophisticated construction and no buddy cutting any corners, and a corrupt Russia will never be able to do that, especially not since it's being awarded to Putin crony Arkady Rotenberg. Well, what do you know? Arkady Rotenberg, who is a good friend of President Putin's insofar as he does have good friends, as in they go, they actually do go all the way back to Putin's uh, youth in St. Peter in St. Petersburg, then Leningrad. He got the contract they built it more or less on time, more or less within budget. There were some cost overruns, but nothing major, and it was clearly built to spec. It stands up, shows that the Russians can not only build things, but they can build something that is sophisticated. And let's also put it this way. There hasn't been a successful construction project like this in the West or in Europe or just anywhere in what Joseph Burrell might call the garden in a long time, and certainly not in Ukraine. So therefore, it's the bridge's very existence is a slap in the face every day it exists to these people, and they want to bring it down, especially the British and the Ukrainians, which is why it was attacked. And it's also why Ukrainian social media finds it very, very funny that the people who were killed were two parents bringing their daughter on a summer vacation to Crimea. Lots of, and she's now orphaned and will have to grow up without oh, no, her parents. They told us that the, the Ukrainian side said, or the pro-Ukrainian side, I shouldn't say Ukrainian because I don't know these people's ethnicities, but they promised us that they were going to help her find, what did they call them? Real parents in a Ukrainian family. So don't worry, she's covered. Um, so not only uh, do we get to watch them gloat over the this insignificant bridge strike, but now we, we get to watch them joke about an orphan's child and call her parents' names and blame them for going on vacation to a very, probably the most common vacation spot in that region. So it's very interesting. The whole, every one of these uh, attacks, these weird, uh, call them terrorists, call them guerrilla, call them whatever you want attacks. Um, the reaction is really the stuff that's the most most telling. Like the after the aftermath, the memes, the reaction to this stuff is, is actually the most telling. Yeah, for uh, uh, for me, it's it's interesting because you know I, I've been uh, reading, uh, unfortunately, the Daily Telegraph uh, the past day or so, and you know we we tie this into battlefield. Um, what what's going on in terms of the Ukrainian offensive, and you know to put it. Uh, <laughs> To put it in in the best terms possible, it hasn't gone according to to plan, as we know. Um, but that's okay. Uh, you know, according to the Daily Telegraph, you can win wars by winning the narrative alone, and and by winning the narrative, somehow that will translate eventually onto the battlefield. And you know, battlefield defeats are just incidental. 
um, in the meantime. And so um, I go, I go to this um, point, I, you know, um, that, uh, you know, when you're, when we're looking at uh, battlefield defeats, it's like, you know, who needs a battlefield victory when we can resort to, uh, you know, to terrorizing civilians. I mean, that's the true hallmark of, of a winning strategy. <laughs> of course it's not. And, you know, I, uh, I really uh, struggle to, to see really any military relevance in terms of shaping the battlefield um, uh, for Ukraine. There was talks of um, increased traffic through Zaporozhye and Donetsk um, in, the, in the hours um, per, uh, after the attack. But uh, I think that that's uh, been very well mitigated um, by Russia. Um, as, as was stated, the, the rail portion of the bridge is intact. And I think this uh, attack on the Kerch Bridge is just a testament to the fact that there is, Ukraine has suffered um, enormous uh, catastrophic battlefield defeat after battlefield defeat. And, you know, a, a state that has long, um, long championed um, terror attacks. This is just part of the uh, part of the uh, game plan on, uh, for Ukraine and it's tragic. So we have this this attack on the bridge. We still kind of don't know what even really hit it, right? Is that that is that where we're at, JM? Like we is- know that it was um, drones which operate just underneath the surface of the water, kind of like what they use to try and strike the Black Sea fleet every now and then in Sevastopol. But every now and then, it's just succeeded in getting those blown up. But here at the bridge, not so much. I think it's because. Um, they're a lot more ready for cruise missile attacks and drones probably than they are for something quite like that, albeit clearly given that electronic warfare was able to disable one of the drones. It's not as if this wasn't anticipated by the planners, but just probably not something that the men and women tasked with defending the bridge were thinking about too much in terms of what they have to watch, but obviously they'll be on the watch uh with all-round defense from this point going forward. Um, it's also interesting that on the, the night after the bridge attack, but that touches on the subject that we'll be getting to next, they tried to launch oh, about 30 drones to attack Crimea, and all of them were brought down either by air defense or elect- landed in Crimea by Russian electronic warfare. So... But this whole thing, I think, actually ties into part of why the grain deal ultimately fell apart, if you think that it's good to move on to that now. Yeah, I mean, I kind of want to tie it in because we're going to talk about the Russian response, uh, the, the Russian military response. So let's talk about because because after the, the bridge happened, right, and before the, the bridge happened right about at the time of the uh, the expiration of the grain deal, right? Yeah, it did. It happened. It happened um, actually, yeah, 48 hours before the grain deal was due to expire. Like the grain deal was due to expire today, but the Russians said yesterday that it's over. Finito. This after last week when there was dooming, when Erdogan said, oh my, we, you know, Putin has agreed to extend the grain deal. Don't you have any doubts about that? And 
Russian telegram was dooming, oh my goodness, you know, the Kremlin has no idea what it's doing. And Peskov then had to reassure everybody, calm down, Erdogan said that, and Agence France Presse reported him saying that. We have said absolutely nothing. And it's also telling that Peskov had to say this when Putin had said a few days before, we would happily stick with the grain deal if the parts of the deal which protected our interests, namely ensuring that we can easily export our fertilizers and our grain across the world and to other countries, if that part of the deal was ever followed through on. But none of that has been followed through on. So Ross Selhoz Bank was never connected to the SWIFT system, despite undertakings from the EU to do so. And they kept stringing Russia along for a year of, um, we can't do it just now. Give us another three months, then another three months. And then this time it was, we'll work on in six months in getting a subsidiary of Ross Selhoz Bank connect, reconnected to SWIFT, but you need to extend the grain deal for another six months. And in the meantime, the Ukrainians blew up the ammonia export pipeline that goes from Tolyati in Samara Oblast, which is also where Avtovaz, the major car factory, is located, incidentally, to Odessa. And they just blew it up. And Ukraine suffered no consequences for that. And as Putin said, you know, we'd stick with this grain deal if any of that had been fulfilled, but it hasn't been enough already. And now it was enough already. I don't think the bridge attack brought this on, but I think it's certainly highlighted given that the vector used for the attack, which was one of these safe sea lane corridors marked out for the export of grain that from Ukraine, that it was just highlighted yet another reason that the Russians had long been uncomfortable with the grain deal, not just because the parts of the deal that were supposed to ensure that Russian agricultural exports could reach the world market more easily had not been implemented, but because the grain corridors had been used when drones were launched off of cargo ships in the grain corridor to attack Savastopol, to attack the Ivan Hurs, which is a reconnaissance ship of the Black Sea Fleet, but which was able to defeat those attacks on it near the Turkstream pipeline. I think this was uh, one or two months ago when the Yvonne Hurs was attacked. And this has been going on, especially with this being used as a vector to attack Sevastopol, these safe corridors, and from civilian cargo ships. That, the, yeah, the Russians had been uncomfortable with this for several months because it was not just that the part of the agreement which protected their interests was not being upheld, but it was being actively instrumentalized against uh, them and as a way of uh, not just uh, destroying Russian things, but killing Russian people. So, yes, the grain deal is dead, but also there had been signs since late June that it was going to be dead because the Russians had refused to certify any new ships. There's a catch, however, a nuance. There are actually two different grain deals. There's the grain deal between Russia, Ukraine, Turkey, and the UN, which is what we think of as the grain deal. And then there is the grain deal between Turkey, Ukraine, and the UN to export Ukrainian grain. And Ukraine has said that they want to continue this with or without the Russians. Now, this isn't entirely 
as much a boast on Kiev's part as you might think, because when Russia temporarily withdrew from the grain deal back in November, i.e. suspended its participation, when there was a major drone attack that nearly hit the Admiral Makarov, among other things, again, nearly hit, it was said that the Makarov had been severely damaged, or even that it had been sunk, except it then turned up two days later in dock, very much fine and dandy. And as a matter of fact, the people who destroyed the drones trying to attack the Admiral Makarov were both service women, uh, non-coms in the Russian Navy. So for people saying that Russia is just a toxically masculine country and that women are only there in the Russian military to do traditional things because Russian women are not allowed in combat, take that. They repelled an attack on their ship, as good sailors do. Um, that nevertheless, Ukraine and Turkey had said when this had happened, well, Russia may have suspended, but we're still going to do it, and they still continued to run ships, and at the time, Russia didn't do anything, and so slunk back into the grain deal, um, looking worse for wear, but with assurances that, oh, no, uh, this won't ever happen again, and for a few months it didn't, but then it kept, it resumed and kept and kept happening again after the new year. So... This has been coming for some time, but the question is, why does it come now? Especially because the grain deal was very, very beneficial to Turkey, and Turkey has the capacity to really make life difficult for Russia. But interestingly, uh, Turkey has said that it will not, at least at this time, provide naval escorts to ships that might try to go to Odessa or Nikolaev Harbor, collect grain or other Ukrainian exports, and then ship them out to sea. Because Russia has said it can't guarantee the safety of these ships, it doesn't mean that ships trying to go in will be attacked on the high seas by the Russian Navy, but that the Russian Navy might stop them and search them for contraband on their way in or their way out, or just far more likely what it means is they won't even do that. They just won't guarantee the safety of the ships when they're docked at, say, Odessa or Nikolaev Harbor when they hit the harbors, as indeed they did last night. Another thing I wanted to touch on, though, before turning back the mic over, and sorry for this being a bit of a JM speech, is that part of the reason that it collapsed and I think that it shows it collapses that Russia is not quite so dependent on Turkey anymore for getting essential inputs to it. They, the Russians have rerouted their supply chains to be more dependent on other countries, let's say further east, and also are now able to produce more things domestically. As a matter of fact, the Russian industrial sector is booming. The PMI has consistently been above 50 and very healthily above 50, sometimes as high as I think 54 in some months ever since the new year. So Russia is able to produce more of what it needs domestically and doesn't need Turkey so much. And part of the proof of the pudding of this is that uh, the Syrian army has begun striking not only Turkish proxies within Syria recently, the Syrian army and the Syrian air force have also begun striking this month, that is in the month of July, Turkish, the Turkish army within uh, Syria itself and their deployment there. So this is also again showing that Turkey isn't needed so much, and also it's putting pressure on Erdogan 
when because Erdogan wanted to meet with Assad, I think he wanted to hold on to some part of Syrian territory. And this is um, Russia saying, obviously, what Assad very much thinks of, no, the borders of Syria are not up for discussion, and you were never here under any invitation. Get out of here. And this has caused Erdogan, I think, why we saw him release Azov, because he started coming under this pressure, and he got very angry. Um, he didn't make an emotional decision, though. When it comes to geopolitics, Erdogan is not a very emotional man. He's a very cool and rational, so he thought that in doing this, he would strike back against Russia and perhaps say, I can embarrass you and make things worse, don't pull out of the grain deal. But I think by the time that he did this, the decision had already been made, at least in Russia, that is, that the grain deal would be finished, because they knew that we will, when Peskov said we will return to the grain deal as soon as the parts of it which protect our interests are implemented, Peskov knows as well as anybody that given the way the rest operates, that means the first of never. But why, my question is, why were, why was Turkey, I think that they went into this bridge attack knowing that this would be the final nail in the grain deal coffin. Um, why, why were they so happy to oblige Russia and cancel and, and do this knowing that it would crush any chances of the grain deal being extended? Why didn't they care? You mean, why did Turkey do what they did in the stunt with the Azov commanders, uh, Chebu? Yeah, and why did they attack the bridge? Like, doing all of this stuff would, would in effect, be the death knell for the... I, 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 I think, I think um, when they did this with the bridge, um, Erdogan knew that the grain deal was dead, and that when he was saying that Putin had agreed to an extension, he was trying to put pressure on Putin, but it badly backfired just as... Erdogan's little flip-flop at NATO at the Vilnius summit badly backfired on him, where he agreed to let in Sweden on the understanding that the United States would supply Turkey with updated F-16s. And then Biden said, well, yeah, I promised you that, but I don't know. So Erdogan is now getting it from both directions. Now, a bit of sympathy for the devil here to, for me to play devil's advocate, which is that this is very typical in Turkish history. Their so-called allies frequently double-cross them. Their people are constantly like, well, the Turks are very shifty and you know they make deals with everybody and they even betray everybody. Well, that's because the Turks in their history have often been betrayed by everybody. And this latest stunt with the F-16 is a prime example of that. this. Erdogan, surrender on a point that isn't necessarily too popular in Turkey and that might in the future compromise your national security. Because once Sweden and Finland are in NATO, they can change the laws and back Kurdish separatists anytime they want. Lord knows the United States does it against Turkey. But let them into... The alliance into the alliance and have uh, further veto power over you, and in return, we'll give you this military equipment. Except now, we're not going to give you this military equipment. And now, Erdogan has also lost this attractive trade deal and this trading relationship with Russia. And the Turkish army is getting hit by the Syrians in Syria. So, 
which also is telling him that his uh, little pet plan to destabilize Syria is probably not going to go his way. And given that the Turks intervened directly militarily in Syria a few times over the years in 2018, but especially in 2020, and 2020 is the relevant bit, in 2020, everybody remembers the time in 2015 when the Turks shot down that Russian Su-24 and the Russians did nothing. As a matter of fact, they even helped save Erdogan's bacon the next year during the coup d'etat attempt. The Russians officially, officially did not target the Syrian army. Officially, the Syrian Air Force did. Well, the Syrian Air Force, if we believe that's what it was, just doing it all without any Russian intelligence help, and all of those warplanes were definitely Syrian, don't you have any doubt about that, Tur purposefully targeted Turkish officers leading this expedition into Syria and even killed a divisional commander and his entire staff in an airstrike on one of their bunkers in March 2020. And the expedition ground to a halt because in addition to losing armored vehicles, they were also losing their command staff and the Turks had to withdraw. So if the Syrians and the Russians are piling pressure on the Turks in Idlib, they know that they can pile on a lot more than they currently are, and also that the rest of NATO is not going to come and save them. Okay, so then last night, Russia launches a little a kind of a, a, a barrage on the smaller sides right and what did they launch last night exactly calibers mostly oh it was a full bouquet of everything the geraniums were blooming it was lovely calibers were launched iskanders hit harkov it was a full ensemble of the orchestra of all of Russia's deep strike capabilities going up over Ukraine, with one presumes uh, false electronic warfare signatures simulating more missile launches than there actually were, so that the Ukrainians were less likely to hit the incoming missiles. And the Ukrainians claimed that they shot down 25 out of 25 Gerons and 6 out of 6 Kalibers. We know from that incident back in early May when the Russians destroyed, I think it was three S-300 launchers, one Buk, and one Gepard with Lancet drones, and the Ukrainians then claimed that they destroyed five Lancet drones, that part of what the Ukrainians do here in their false reporting is they count drones or missiles which hit their target as destroyed. Which, when you think about it, is true, because, I mean, the missile's not going to get up after it hits its target and fly away back to from where it was launched so it can be reused again. A missile or a drone which hits its target is, by definition, destroyed and can therefore be counted as successfully intercepted, successfully intercepted by its target. One of which, as we know from footage, were the fuel depots in both Nikolaev port and Odessa port. The fuel depots, in other words, successfully intercepted those drones, by golly. The flames burned very brightly as they did. And do you think that this is like, we're now seeing like the petering out of the counteroffensive? Or is this like a, or are we still getting warmed up? Because how long has the counteroffensive even been going on, really? It's been going on since 4 June 2023. And okay. the world has never been the same since. I'm not being entirely facetious there, and I'll explain why in a bit. But 
to quickly go back to the strikes, I think these strikes, given how the Russians roll, the Russians are not, particularly the top decision makers are not particularly emotional or they don't let their emotions govern them govern them so this was planned and i think it was planned to demonstrate that the grain deal was off and that odessa port and nikolaev port were by no means at all protected anymore and would now be accorded the priority of target just like they'd been as back in may 2022 20, uh, so like there was a lot more footage back from april and may 2022 of the port in nikolaev and in odessa being hit and now i think we'll be seeing a lot more of that as russia accelerates its strategic air campaign or rather doesn't accelerate it so much as slightly turn up the notch all in accordance with weapons production of course so this was planned ahead. If there is going to be a response for the Crimean bridge bomb, the Kerch bridge bomb bombing, I think we have yet to see it, and we might never see it. And if we do see it, it'll probably be something very marginal and technocratic. Putin loves to do this, as I like to joke that when Putin is about to make a speech, everybody pay attention, as you sometimes get from Telegram that Putin is about to announce a very important policy change. And that important policy change, which will affect things massively going forward, is that from now on, Belarus will no longer have to pay 50% of the market price for natural gas. It will only have to pay 48.99% of uh, the market price for natural gas. This uh, shows uh, that the integration of the union state is progressing ever steadily towards full integration. You were asking about the counteroffensive. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm really curious because I, I, I don't, I, you guys all like to cover that, like on the ground, gaining land, who, what tanks are are ploinked or whatever you guys say, and I kind of like, I'm more so interested in, in the other side where you know I'm seeing that the it not being a successful counteroffensive, not because I observe the on the ground things, because I more so observe the geo political circus that's going on and 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 like coinciding with it um and in that sphere it looks really bad so i'm 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 wondering like what the numbers really are on the ground there are what they're close to um but the vibe because the vibe that i'm getting out of like international politics is that the faith is kind of diminishing or they're they're kind of like well You're on your own, or I don't know. Like I'm just kind of, I'm confused because I I was very much anticipating a counteroffensive, and not this isn't in like a joking way, like har har har, but I was very much anticipating like a well thought out counteroffensive that was going to be like almost like like a miniature shock and all at the onset, and I wasn't even sure that it had started, and I'm still not really. I don't even, I haven't heard of any like major gains. It's been over a month. So I'm just, I'm wondering what the failure was here and if it was by design to fail. But I'm saying by design on at the behest of the West, you know, and, and if it was, if it was like, this is going to fail, but we're going to do it anyway, kind of thing. Logically, uh, you, you get that sense. I mean, there was nine um, NATO trained uh, brigades that were meant to come in with a combined arms tactic of employing um, artillery, um, infantry, 
um, uh, air support, which is, uh, um, uh, you know, a joke when, uh, you know, we're talking about Ukrainian uh, capabilities uh, with Russia having completely uh, demilitarized most of uh, Ukraine's air capabilities within the first week of the of the SMO. Um, you know, a month and a half into this now, we're, we're looking at, uh, you know, 30,000, upwards of 30,000 um, Ukrainian um, casualties. Uh, there's talks of, um, by the end of this year, a further 100,000 um, casualties if we continue at this rate, um, with about 300,000, um, you know, um, irrecoverable uh, losses. And one, you know, logically, I can't see how the West would have ever concluded that that this would succeed. Um, but, uh, you know, it's funny, the narrative in the West now is that um, the counteroffensive is, is failing because um, Ukraine has um, adopted the more sensible and, and traditionally Soviet artillery oh, yeah. uh, dominant strategy which is which is hilarious it's it's i it, tweeted about it because it I, just I baffles saw belief it. yeah and it said somebody literally reasoning was they've they vacated their western trained tactics and have reverted back to soviet tactics which is hilarious to me because you've been training them for longer than this have been training them since the 40s so they should be very well ingrained with with your with your training and your tactics. Well, how, also, also, how would just, any of them know? How would any of them know Soviet tactics anymore? Like, and this is the whole thing is just baffling. They've blamed that they've reverted back to Soviet tactics, which is just such an insult to the Ukrainians. Like, how can you even say that to their army? Uh, what was the other thing they blamed? They said that. Uh, they're doing it too fast. They were the ones wanting it to start. Of course, it, it's it, it really is starting left. to look like yeah. They're they're it, just it really letting is, them out to dry. It's done. Like, yeah, it it really looks like the ultimate end here was to fight to the last Ukrainian, and that's you know because logically what Ukraine is doing now, husband, you know when you're preserving men <laughs> with an artillery dominant um, tactic. Um, and that's not good enough for the West. No, it's, you know, we want to emulate what, you know, the first week of this of this counteroffensive, uh, June 4th, um, you know, when you lost a third of, of uh, the tanks that we provided. And it just seems like the end goal is not, um, you know, not uh, uh, to regain territory and, and reach the Azov Sea. It's, it's just, let's weaken let's weaken a resurgent superpower in Russia and we're fine fighting to the last Ukrainian because, you know, at the end of the day, it's all about weakening Russia. It's all about, you know, creating that existentialist crisis on Russia's borders, which is exactly what Putin talks about when he says, you know, you guys and the pro-Russian community that think that we don't respond to red lines, this was our response to an ultimate red line, you know, the very existence of the Russian state and the Russian people, and we have responded. Uh, so, you know, in terms of this counteroffensive, it's 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 already failed, 
And now we see Russia advancing all along the all along the front from Donetsk um, to uh, the Liman front line and uh, the Kupiansk front line. We see Russia advancing, and it's uh, it, again. I I can't see how you build a third or fourth. Um, army, um, even if you can come up with the uh, with the arms, uh, uh, you know, I don't see where the manpower comes from uh, at this point uh, from Ukraine. It's been absolutely decimated, and it's tragic. It it never had to be this way, of course. I I think, however, there is something more to that, which is that we all expected the counteroffensive to do a lot better than it has done, as. Um, Chebu said, sometimes one gets the sense of, has it even begun, which you sometimes read in the Western press, like, well, this can't possibly it. Um, I'm afraid it is, because they actually did use quite a bit of artillery at the beginning, but it was accompanying when they were all rushing forward, and we've seen the clips from, I forget where exactly that is in the Zaporozhia area, where it's just a bunch of MRAPs piling into this one area and getting blown up one after the other by mines or by tank or by getting shot at from artillery or, or Russian tanks, but they're all piling into this one little area. And no, I'm not talking about the Bradley pi Bradley and Leopard pileup. That's a separate one, but it did look a lot like a human wave assault. Now, not with the dismounted infantry, but that was mostly because the infantry never got a chance to mostly dismount. They never even got close to the Russian lines. I think in a geopolitics terms, however, that the two big pileups of modern Western equipment, so the infamous one near, uh, I think it was near Orechovo, that Voindeve captured in a picture where it was a bunch of Leopards and Bradleys all in one great big pile, all burnt out and abandoned, and that the Russians labor later were able to inspect on foot. And the second one, where you had those three Finnish modified Leopard mine-clearing vehicles, which were either disabled or burnt out, and in the distance were burnt out Leopards and more Bradleys. Yeah, I think that in geopolitics that has been one of the most significant things since the start of the SMO, because right there, I think it was on Twitter, um, somebody said, and I forget who exactly, that this was, and unfortunately it's not my insight and not my quote, I think it was Armchair Warlord who said that this is 73 Easting in reverse. Looking at those pictures, 73 Easting, for those of our listeners who do not know, is this famous battle with, I think it was the Tawal Khana division of the Iraqi Republican Guard, where a regiment of the Tawal Khana was destroyed, and in return, the U.S. lost one Bradley disabled and one crewman killed, and for the rest, it was just a burning pile of Soviet equipment that had been was supplied to the Tawakana Brigade. Well, this was 73 Easting in reverse. A whole bunch of top-line Western equipment supplied to something that was to a far greater extent than the Iraqis were trained by the Soviets, because the Iraqis were also trained, in fact, just as extensively 
by the French, as they were by the Soviets, and even to some extent by the British, that you saw a U.S. Tra- a NATO-trained unit with NATO equipment and a European army being absolutely thrashed and destroyed and burning, and the cause of that was the successor of the Soviet army. Um, I think that has done quite a bit, and I don't think I'm exaggerating very much to shatter the idea of Western conventional military supremacy. This is why when Putin said a few days later in St. Petersburg, I think it was at Spief, but it could have just been at a function in St. Petersburg. I forget the exact one, but it was where delegates of 100 countries were present, that when he was asked, what if F-16s are supplied? And he said, well, just like with their other equipment, they will burn like the rest. And he got a standing ovation. Since nobody has to applaud him for those remarks, and certainly no one has to give him a standing ovation, I think it was deeply felt in the, by the delegates in the room that they were very, very happy to see a Western-backed military with Western gear and that was Western-trained and, again, a European army being absolutely thrashed by a non-Western power. I think that a lot more than anything else has upset geopolitics, that image of Bradley's and Leopard's, of top-line NATO military equipment just being absolutely destroyed by something that is the successor of the Soviet army, and even in some respects still looks like the Soviet army. And and in your opinion, you t- you mentioned uh, basically this reputational damage which has been done, and and I think that's uh, a great uh, you know consequence to this failed offensive. Um, we haven't notably we haven't seen any Challenger tanks, uh, United Kingdom supplied Challenger tanks, and in your view, is that due to the the reputational damage that's been suffered already? You know, we see the the images of burnt out leopards and Bradleys. Um, is this just uh, you know a, a grasping um, you know to mitigate any further reputational damage by uh, by the UK uh, government? I honestly don't know what the situation is with the challengers and i wouldn't suspect i mean these are telegram rumors who knows how true they are i mean for a long time the leopards didn't appear and as i recall there was even some telegram speculation that the germans weren't going to allow the ukrainians to use their tanks well they did so will the challengers ever appear i don't know but whether it's 14 or were supplied 28 I think given how handily the Russians were able to kill the Leopards, it's pretty certain that they'll know how to kill the Challengers. And if the Challengers do turn up, they will burn like all the rest. And if the Ukrainians have them, I think they will use them and they will be found and they will be destroyed by the Russians. I think in any event, the damage has been done because these units were not just regular Ukrainian units that were sent on this offensive and that failed so graphically. They were units that were cobbled together specifically from younger Ukrainian soldiers who, if memory serves me from my reading of Kiev Post, Kiev Independent articles, had joined the VSU after 
2005 because NATO didn't want to deal with any soldiers who had been, I don't know, infected by Soviet-style training and Soviet-style thinking or corruption. They wanted people who were firmly Western-oriented and who had been heavily influenced by NATO training or had received NATO training previously and would therefore benefit just from the awesome instruction on hand and would be given the best equipment. And it is these formations and these soldiers, so not just a Western proxy, but the most Western-oriented soldiers and officers within that army who have been trained by NATO and are oriented and have had much of their military training even before they went through these special courses trained by NATO that were uh, that suffered this ignominious defeat. What has been going on since is that the Ukrainians have been trying to kind of recreate German stormtrooper tactics from 1917, 1918 of having groups of infantry use cover and the terrain to infiltrate forward as far close as they can to Russian lines and then surging forward under artillery bombardment and protection to breach into the enemy defenses uh, and take trenches. And the Ukrainian formations that have done this have had more success. They've taken some hamlets, but it's been entirely marginal because I honestly expected, and I wrote a, I wrote a couple of posts for the channel about this back in March called Zaporozhia Dooming, where I expected that the Ukrainians would truly unleash hell with drones, with artillery, and would not only get through the screen pretty easily, but they'd end up breaching the first line of defense, but I didn't get they think they'd get even further than that. They haven't even reached the first line of fortifications. We are now here at 18 July, so it's six weeks since the counteroffensive started, and getting on seven weeks, and they haven't even yet reached the first defensive line, which is actually polite to say that. They're not even close to the first defensive line. So the counteroffensive in terms of where it's going, I guess they could keep it going if they threw in more formations and tried to concentrate them to get a breakthrough. I think they would break through perhaps the security screen then if they did that. And then they'd reach the first defensive line, and it would all die out there. I don't see where this goes. And especially given that, as Biden admitted, when he supplied the cluster shell ammunition, NATO is kind of tapped out of ammunition. This is going to be a rather critical factor for the Ukrainians moving forward through the next year, because NATO artillery production will not start to pick up until the end of 2024 in any significant way. Yeah, I was reading that uh, by 2028, they're projecting uh, the U.S. Um, that they could basically um, account for half of um, uh, Ukraine's daily projected artillery needs by 2028. Um, hence, as, as you said about the uh, cluster uh, bombs being provided, um, and you talked about the light infantry uh, success that uh, Ukraine has enjo enjoyed of late, you know, marginally, um, light infantry over open fields. 
Um, but what this does, this um, move with the cluster bombs, is it greenlights Putin to authorize, it greenlights uh, the Kremlin to authorize um, Russian use of cluster bombs, <laughs> which does not, not work out so well for spread out uh, light uh, infantry over uh, open fields. So it, it's just, in my mind, further proof that that the nail, you know, the final nails in the coffin on this uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive. Um, I think, you know, Zaluzhny is is pushing for um, the strategic reserves to be held back. Um, they they know um, General Winter will be on the way. And there's a looming um, potential uh, second uh, front um, that uh, Russia could launch uh, from anywhere in uh, Kharkov to, uh, to uh, Sumy to, to Chernigov. And uh, it's not going to uh, end well. I, I, I see a catastrophic collapse of uh, the Ukrainian forces. And I think that's where we're at in terms of uh, the Ukrainian counteroffensive. Right. So where do we even go from here? I mean, they, they had rumors about that big Russian buildup recently, and now we have more rumors coming in um, saying that Ukraine has something like uh, 63,000 troops, 17 brigades prepared for the next part of the counteroffensive. What is the next part? What, what happens next? I think they'll probably continue to attack. They have to. They have to demonstrate some success. If they call off the offensive, that would be to admit defeat, and they don't admit defeat. This is part of why they're still continuing to attack around Artyomovsk, particularly, as we have seen in the past few days, around the village of Kleshevka, because they have not admitted that they've lost Artyomovsk even after it was taken two months ago. So for them to call off or even to call off the offensive would be to admit that they have lost and that they simply will not do and cannot do because Ukraine is something of a bubble. And if you start to let air out of it, it can start going quicker and badly in ways that they might not like. And in particular, because you have to bear in mind that there is this sense that even if you're attacking and it seems kind of hopeless, well, at least you're attacking and the momentum and the initiative appear to be with you. So it's also a way, I think, of keeping up morale among their troops if they continue this attack. Yes, and and the um, the whole narrative out of Ukraine and from the West's perspective is that, you know, from the from their own perspective, they admit that uh that they perceive that they're winning the um, that that they're winning the narrative war, and again, if you if you just keep pushing, and if you can you know show even that you're taking uh, you know the odd hamlet, and you can win this narrative uh, uh, war against clunky, uh, you know less suave, less sexy, uh, you know, narrative from, from the Russian orcs that somehow that this will eventually translate into a decisive win on the battlefield. And it's just, I mean, it just baffles logic, it baffles belief, but they, uh, to some extent that, you know, they really have uh, done an impressive job, uh, you know, in terms of informational warfare. But as we see, it does, it does not translate to the battlefield. 
What do you think, Chebu, that the overall geopolitical consequences of the counteroffensive have been? I, I'm very worried for Ukraine. I'm very, like, legitimately worried for, not the army, I'm talking about the actual nation. Uh, I just see an absolute collapse in terms of demographic. And uh, there's no, there's no, as far as I can see, there's no economic recovery from this in the foreseeable future. Um, I am very concerned for Ukraine, a country that is trying to grasp onto its national identity with everything it has is literally losing it to the people that promised to help them protect it. And it's incredibly sad because the warning signs are always there. Uh, they exist in Yugoslavia, they exist in Libya, and they exist in the middle, all over the Middle East and the Levant. The, I, it's just, it's heartbreaking to watch it happen again, honestly. Um, the NATO summit was, I was shocked at sort of like their behavior towards Zelensky, a sort of like, you know, like a, like not like a joke, but it's more like a novelty item, like a play thing, you know? I was kind of shocked at that behavior. And then after the, the, the media coverage, after the NATO summit, where, where they, the West started calling, saying Zelensky was ungrateful, you know, they reported on Zelensky's responses. They've talked about the counteroffensive being too slow or not productive enough. And these are very worrying signs for Ukraine in general, because this is where they're going to start washing their hands of them overall. And, and I believe that's already begun. At the onset of the Vilnius uh, summit, you had uh, the Czech president stating um, in an interview that um, essentially NATO was giving Ukraine until the end of December. And at that point, um, there would be a, an immense winding down of support for Ukraine. And if that doesn't telegraph um, what's going to happen in terms of the, you know, the collapse of uh, of the sovereignty of a very new nation that hadn't existed as a sovereign state essentially until 1991 uh, from 1991 uh, and it's uh, like you said it's tragic it, it's been um, an exercise almost in depopulation uh, it, it's just been absolutely decimated future you know for it, it's going to take numerous generations. And I think, um, again, the goal was to weaken Russia, even, even, even when they pull out, they declare victory, uh, NATO, um, and thinking that uh, this is going to um, entangle Russia for generations in terms of rebuilding what, whatever Russia decides on. Um, and as victors, they will draw the new lines on, on the geopolitical map. And, but I think, um, but I think that Russia's approach to this entire war has shown uh, that Russia builds, reconstructs, whether it's in Mariupol, that they build up institutions um, that basically build people up. And you contrast that with the Ukrainian state-sponsored terror that we see with the Kerch Bridge. Um, we, we saw it from 2014 um, with the shelling of, of innocent civilians 
in, in the Donbass. And that's quite the contrast. And I think Russia has proven that they have the economic resilience um, to move forward with such a rebuilding project. It, it'll be um, the largest undertaking in the history of the Russian civilization. And I think they're up to the task, um, but it's, it's tragic. The human loss is tragic and it never had to be this way. But unfortunately the West decided um, that it was okay to use Ukraine um, as the tip of the spear to fight Russia to the last Ukrainian. And that's very sad and tragic. Yeah. Very somber note. I don't want to, I kind of don't want to wrap up there. <laughs> well, let me wrap up instead on a bit of the theater, uh, on a bit of the absurd. So in terms of what we're discussing there was a new tweet thread highlighted by Mark Ames, and which I saw retweeted by Professor Tarek Cyril Amar, who we've had on the podcast before, and to talk about his book on the formation of a Ukrainian Lviv as opposed to a Polish Lvov or a German Lemberg, about his return with three other experts from uh, Conrad Muzika of Roshan Consulting, Rob Lee, who you might see a lot on social media, and also Michael Kaufman, who has moved on from the Center for the, the CNA. I forget its exact acronym, but the think tank he was at before and has now moved on to, to be a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment is that they blame is that they say a bunch of things but among other things that they say having talking exclusively to ukrainians they mention high morale but they also notice that conscripts older conscripts less experienced conscripts are coming in on the ukrainian side and they're still trying to paint a good picture but basically they're saying that it's anything but our but our fault it's uh, everybody's fault but ours. And also they're saying the Ukrainians still have yet to, you know, combine arms to do combined arms warfare, but they kind of grasp combined arms warfare. It's a rather contradictory tweet. Interestingly, on 18 April 2023, Franz Stefan Gady wrote a paper, or I shouldn't say a paper, he wrote an article for Foreign Policy magazine that was called with the appropriately cloying title, Ukraine's Longest Day. And he said that most of the speculation and debate is about when and where Ukrainian forces will strike, how big an attacking force Ukraine has assembled, and how much of an impact newly supplied Western weapons will have. What we do know is that in recent months, the war has been re increasingly defined by attrition. This is back in April. So three months ago, actually, now, three months ago to the day, neither side appears to have a decisive advantage. Whatever happens on Ukraine's D-Day, it will not be easy for Ukrainian forces to avoid the war's character as one of attrition, even if they are large, well-prepared, and well-equipped. And here comes the kicker. This was the plan. This was the plan of the counteroffensive, and this is the plan's failure that they're not reckoning with. And it was based on some magical thinking. 
There is perhaps only one way for Ukraine to escape the scourge of attrition in the opening hours of the upcoming offensive, set off paralysis in the Russian military leadership, and panic across the Russian rank and file. Ukraine's greatest chance of success will come if Russian soldiers skedaddle from advancing Ukrainian forces without putting up much of a fight. Even if the correlation of forces were advantageous for Ukraine, that alone would not be sufficient to attain these effects. Rather, intangible factors such as tactical surprise, battlefield leadership, and fighting morale will likely be decisive in the first 24 hours of an attack. These intangible factors, not weapons alone, will help define whether the Ukrainians succeed in panicking the Russians, paralyzing the Russian military leadership and causing a temporary breakdown in command and control. In this scenario, Ukrainian armored columns punch through layered Russian defenses, quickly advance into the Russian rear, and threaten command and control nodes like military headquarters and supply centers, compounding the panic and paralysis. This kind of breakdown on the Russian side is exactly what took place during Ukraine's lightning counteroffensive in September 2022 in Kharkov Oblast. The Ukrainians had set the conditions for the attack with a campaign of artillery attacks. Then, even though the Russians had observed the Ukrainian buildup, the attackers achieved tactical surprise, committed superior numbers, caused temporary panic, and set off a breakdown in Russian command and control. All of this delayed the speedy dispatch of Russian reserves that break that might have steadied the front line. I'm not going to keep on reading this, both because we don't have all night and also because this portrayal of the Kharkov counteroffensive is absolute nonsense in terms of the fact that what the Ukrainians were punching was a thin picket screen comprised of Lugansk reservists and Roskvardia who fell back desperately under artillery with artillery and air support to slow down a Ukrainian tide that they could not hope to stop. It wasn't a panic so much as they punched through a picket screen into a part of the line where the Russians weren't didn't have reserves to deploy, and it appears had no intention of deploying any reserves. But that was the plan. Intangible factors, fighting spirit, and because we have superior fighting spirit, because clearly there's the idea that Ukrainian forces just have such superior leadership, morale, and tactical ability that they'll be able to do this, that they'll run away. Another army had this sort of conceit that through intangible factors such as spirit, they could overcome incredible material deficiencies, lack of weapons, lack of artillery, lack of heavy artillery, lack of ammunition, and overwhelm a much better supplied enemy that they didn't outnumber. This was called the Imperial Japanese Army fighting the United States in the Pacific War. It didn't end too well for them. That's that's incredible. I mean, one wonders... Uh... What, what type of uh, drugs uh, one needs to get to these uh, absurd uh, conclusions that, you know, when there were no fortified lines in Kharkov, uh, there was no intention, as you said, of, of sending in reserves. <laughs> that, you know, when it's, it's open source, you can see the, the immense three heavily fortified lines in Zaporozhia that somehow... Um, that this would be a recipe for success. Like I said, um, you know, that's some drugs and uh, um, it's, it's incredible. Well, I think on that note that yes, they got high on their own supply. And as a result, their supply was cut off in the grain deal. 
I think that's a good place to end it, but we'll certainly be back for more because more is always happening. <laughs> it's happening right now. Literally, there are massive uh, air raids going on. So, it's uh, <laughs> unfortunate. If you guys would like to hear us drone on more and more and more and more, please subscribe to our Substack. It, all of our content is free on every platform with options to support on Substack and Twitter tips. Um, we'll probably link everything in the description of this podcast. And thank you guys so much for listening. Any final thoughts from Jerry or JM? Uh, thank you for having me, guys. It's it's been a pleasure. Um, ultimately, I you know the silver lining here is that uh, um, Russia has planned for this uh, for many decades now, um, dating back to I, I think Putin's infamous 2007 speech. Very prophetic. Here we are now. Um, the Russians have this in hand and all is all will be well. Um, so thank you guys. It's it's been a blast and uh, hopefully you'll you'll have me back. My parting thought would be always read a variety of sources and always read them critically. Very sound advice, JM. Thanks everyone. And we will see you next time on the DDGO Politics Podcast. <laughs>